Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. De Futilitate On Futility by C.S. Lewis Part 3 There remains, of course, the possibility that its values are widely different from ours. And, in some sense, this must be so. The particular interpretation of the universe which I accept certainly represents them as differing from ours in many acutely distressing ways. But there are strict limits to the extent which we can allow to this admission. Let us go back to the question of logic. I have tried to show that you reach a self-contradiction if you say that logical inference is, in principle, invalid. On the other hand, nothing is more obvious than that we frequently make false inferences. From ignorance of some of the factors involved, from inattention, from inefficiencies in the system of symbols, linguistic or otherwise, which we are using, from the secret influence of our unconscious wishes or fears. We are, therefore, driven to combine a steadfast faith and inference as such with a wholesome skepticism about each particular instance of inference in the mind of a human thinker. As I have said, there is no such thing, strictly speaking, as human reason. But there is emphatically such a thing as human thought. In other words, the various specifically human conceptions of reason, failures of complete rationality, which arise in a wishful and lazy human mind utilizing a tired human brain. The difference between acknowledging this and being skeptical about reason itself is enormous. For in the one case, we should be saying that reality contradicts reason, whereas now, we are only saying that total reason, cosmic or supercosmic reason, corrects human imperfections of reason. Now, correction is not the same as mere contradiction. When your false reasoning is corrected, you, quote, see the mistakes. The true reasoning thus takes up into itself whatever was already rational in your original thought. You are not moved into a totally new world, you are given more and purer of what you already had in a small quantity and badly mixed with foreign elements. To say that reason is objective is to say that all our false reasonings could in principle be corrected by more reason. I have to add, in principle, because, of course, the reasoning necessary to give us absolute truth about the whole universe might be indeed, certainly would be, too complicated for any human mind to hold it all together or even to keep on attending. But that, again, would be a defect in the human instrument, not in reason. A sum in simple arithmetic may be too long and complicated for a child's limited powers of concentration, but it is not a radically different kind of thing from the short sums the child can do. Now, it seems to me that the relation between our sense of values and the values acknowledged by the cosmic or supercosmic reason is likely to be the same as the relation between our attempts at logic and logic itself. 
It is, I admit, conceivable that the ultimate reason acknowledges no values at all. But that theory, as I have tried to show, is inconsistent with our continuing to attach any importance to our own values. And since everyone, in fact, intends to continue doing so, that theory is not really a live option. But if we attribute a sense of value to the ultimate reason, I do not think we can suppose it to be totally different from our own sense of value. If it were, then our own sense of value would have to be merely human. And from that, all the same consequences would flow as from an admission that the supreme mind acknowledged no values at all. Indeed, to say that a mind has a sense of values totally different from the only values we can conceive is to say that that mind has we know not what, which is precious near saying nothing particular about it. It would also be very odd, on the supposition that our sense of values is a mere illusion, that education, rationality, and enlightenment show no tendency to remove it from human minds. And at this stage in the argument, there's really no inducement to do any of these rather desperate things. The prima facie case for denying a sense of values to the cosmic or supercosmic mind has really collapsed the moment we see that we have to attribute reason to it. When we are forced to admit that reason cannot be merely human, there is no longer any compulsive inducement to say that virtue is purely human. If wisdom turns out to be something objective and external, it is at least probable that goodness will turn out to be the same. But here also, it is reasonable to combine a firm belief in the objective validity of goodness with a considerable skepticism about all our particular moral judgments. To say that they all require correction is indeed to say both that they are partially wrong and that they are not merely subjective facts about ourselves. For if that were so, the process of enlightenment would consist not in correcting them, but in abandoning them altogether. There is, to be sure, one glaringly obvious ground for denying that any moral purpose at all is operative in the universe. Namely, the actual course of events in all its wasteful cruelty and apparent indifference or hostility to life. But then, as I maintain, that is precisely the ground which we cannot use. Unless we judge this waste and cruelty to be real evils, we cannot, of course, condemn the universe for exhibiting them. Unless we take our own standard of goodness to be valid in principle, however fallible are particular applications of it, we cannot mean anything by calling waste and cruelty evils. And unless we take our own standard to be something more than ours, to be in fact an objective principle to which we are responding, we cannot regard that standard as valid. In a word, unless we allow ultimate reality to be moral, we cannot morally condemn it. The more seriously we take our own charge of futility, the more we are committed to the implication that reality in the last resort is not futile at all. The defiance of the good atheist hurled at an apparently ruthless and idiotic cosmos is really an unconscious homage to something in or behind that cosmos 
which he recognizes as infinitely valuable and authoritative. For if mercy and justice were really only private whims of his own, with no objective and impersonal roots, and if he realized this, he could not go on being indignant. The fact that he arraigns heaven itself for disregarding them means that at some level of his mind he knows they are enthroned in a higher heaven still. I cannot and never could persuade myself that such defiance is displeasing to the supreme mind. There is something holier about the atheism of a Shelley than about the theism of a Paley. That is the lesson of the book of Job. No explanation of the problem of unjust suffering is there given. That is not the point of the poem. The point is that the man who accepts our ordinary standard of good and by it hotly criticizes divine justice receives the divine approval. The orthodox, pious people who palter with that standard in the attempt to justify God are condemned. Apparently, the way to advance from our imperfect apprehension of justice to the absolute justice is not to throw our imperfect apprehensions aside, but boldly to go on applying them. Just as the pupil advances to more perfect arithmetic, not by throwing his multiplication table away, but by working it for all it is worth. Of course, no one will be content to leave the matter just where the book of Job leaves it. But that is as far as I intend to go tonight. Having grasped the truth that our very condemnation of reality carries in its heart an unconscious act of allegiance to that same reality as the source of our moral standards, we then, of course, have to ask how this ultimate morality in the universe can be reconciled with the actual course of events. It is really the same sort of problem that meets us in science. The pell-mell of phenomena, as we first observe them, seems to be full of anomalies and irregularities. But being assured that reality is logical, we go on framing and trying out hypotheses to show that the apparent irregularities are not irregular at all. The history of science is the history of that process. The corresponding process whereby having admitted that reality in the last resort must be moral, we attempt to explain evil, is the history of theology. Into that theological inquiry, I do not propose to go at present. If any of you thinks of pursuing it, I would risk giving him one piece of advice. I think he can save himself time by confining his attention to two systems, Hinduism and Christianity. I believe these are the two serious options for an adult mind. Materialism is a philosophy for boys. The purely moral systems like Stoicism and Confucianism are philosophies for aristocrats. Islam is only a Christian heresy, and Buddhism a Hindu heresy. Both are simplifications inferior to the things simplified. As for the old pagan religions... I think we could say that whatever was of value in them survives either in Hinduism or in Christianity or in both. And there only.
They are the only two systems which have come down, still alive, into the present, without leaving the past behind them. But all that is a matter for further consideration. I aim tonight only at reversing the popular belief that reality is totally alien to our minds. My answer to that view consists simply in restating it in the form, our minds are totally alien to reality. Put that way, it reveals itself as a self-contradiction. For if our minds are totally alien to reality, then all our thoughts, including this thought, are worthless. We must, if we are to have any moral standards, grant it moral standards, too. And there is really no reason why we should not do the same about standards of beauty. There is no reason why our reaction to a beautiful landscape should not be the response, however humanly blurred and partial, to a something that is really there. The idea of a wholly mindless and valueless universe has to be abandoned at one point. That is, as regards logic. After that, there is no telling at how many other points it will be defeated, nor how great the reversal of our 19th century philosophy must finally be. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right.